GB podcast with Hannah Cockcroft, Beijing 2022. Welcome to Paralympics GB with Hannah Cockcroft. I'm talking with my fellow athletes to find out exactly what it takes to be a Paralympian, what goes on in their brain, what really motivates and inspires them to be the best in the world. In this episode, I'm chatting with Millie Knight. In 2014, Millie became the youngest British athlete to compete at a Winter Paralympic Games when she took to the slopes at Sochi at just 15 years old. Since then, she has gone on to win a host of medals, including a gold, and she's going to correct me, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, at Tervisio 2017 in the downhill. Millie, I hope your pronunciation of countries is much better than mine. But thank you very much for joining me all the way from Beijing. You're already there. You're at the Games. How are you doing? I am indeed. Yeah, it's good. We've been here a couple of days now over the jet lag and been skiing on the race hill now. So it's, yeah, it's Is it all feeling here. a bit real now? Like you're there, ready to go? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I could just like Pyeongchang, it was like, oh, you know, over a thousand days until Beijing. And I kind of kept thinking that it was like a thousand days to go until it's like your flight's tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now all of a sudden it's like two days to go. And it's, oh, it oh, flies dear. by, doesn't it? <laughs> it feels like you've got forever to prepare and people think, oh, four years is such a long time. And then I literally feel like Tokyo was yesterday and we're already at nearly two years to go. So I'm not sure where that time went, but I need to get training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four years, like some people are like, oh, that's so long. I don't know how you train for four years. But actually, it really goes very, very quickly, especially when you have World Championships, World Cups, Europa Cups, British Champs, like so many different races. It, it really does go yeah, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start by taking you away from Beijing, take you right back to the beginning. I mean, there's not much snow in the UK. There's not much snow in Kent, to be honest, is there? So can you tell me, how did you get involved in skiing? No. Because I feel like it's, it's just not something that British people do. <laughs> yeah, I could have taken up an easier, cheaper, more accessible sport. But uh, no. So I lost my sight at the age of three in my right eye. And when I was six, it went again in my left eye. And uh, it was kind of like around that time that my mum had a family ski trip booked. And she just thought, well, Millie's coming on that trip, come what may. I, I went on it and absolutely loved it. And I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. Because like at the time... I was at school, I was doing everything that everybody else was doing, but not very well, <laughs> really failing at sports in general. And then all of a sudden, this is a sport that I could do and that I, I loved. Your mom sounds like an absolute hero. I mean, I read online that she, is. she was actually one of your first guides as well. Like for me, my dad, my dad's been a massive support throughout my career, my mom as well, but my dad has driven me mm-hmm. to every competition, he's pulled apart and made and redesigned race chairs to make sure that they actually fit and that I can fit in them but you literally couldn't have done your sport without your mum at the start is is that right yeah absolutely I was 12 when I was first on the GB team and obviously at that age I still need my mum to come with me everywhere but because we were fully self-funded we couldn't afford another guide on top of that so I'd been paying for three people and my mum was a fairly well a very good skier and so she kind of stepped in and, and guided me until she decided to retire. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, it was more of a forced retirement, I guess. Um, <laughs> but mum, mum's been there for me through everything. So it's a bit strange not having her here in Beijing. Oh, that's so sweet. Genuinely, your family just sound like the most supportive family, which is amazing. Do you feel like their support has changed 
like as you've become more successful you've traveled more you're winning all these medals now do you feel like it's changed or are they, are they still just like same mom still there like my dad's still the same person who rings me up and is like right get out of bed you need to go training what was that race that was rubbish he's never got any easier on me it's always been just like this is my job and I'm gonna motivate as, as your mom uh, yeah as your mom taking a step back my mum's support has been unconditional from the very start. Obviously, the support has changed as I've got older, as I've become more of a mature athlete, as I've had more successes and gone through some pretty tough times with injuries and crashes and things like that. So mum's support, support's had to adapt over the years, going from kind of like the young child to, to kind of the elite athlete. And uh, yeah, she's she's been phenomenal, actually. Oh, I really want to meet your mum now. Can we do a podcast with your mum next? That, that'd be great, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that would be actually really cool. <laughs> I bet she could tell me some right stories, couldn't she? You can get the gossip. <laughs> you mentioned when you started out having to fund, obviously, yourself and your mum and, and the financial side of Paralympic sport. And I feel like this is something that it's not actually discussed that often. Like, obviously, I know the financial impact of my sport. A race chair costs, a cheap race chair is about £4,000. If you want my race chair, you're looking at £8,000 upwards. And I feel like this is something that's just not discussed outside of the Paralympic world. So yeah, like how how did you kind of get around that, especially starting out? For me, it was such a barrier getting my access to that first race chair. For you, I, I guess it was actually getting access to snow and, and getting to places you can actually do your sport. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. A mountain isn't exactly local, (laughs) is it? (laughs) So kind of any training is quite a a mammoth mission and obviously rather expensive. And funding is is a weird, vicious cycle that you need results to get funding, but you need funding to get results. Um, And obviously as a, as a young 12 year old who, you know, hasn't really won very much or done anything spectacular, it's very difficult to get that funding. But thankfully I had some incredible and still have incredible local sponsors who clearly saw saw something in me and have supported me all the way through you mentioned about the training as well so I was wondering how do you train I mean do you just live outside of the UK most of the time or how does that work basically we um kind of during the summer just gone we spent about seven weeks in total in Switzerland because it's just so much easier to kind of stay out there for longer periods of time than keep coming forwards and backwards. So our training blocks tend to be longer so we can maximise the amount of training we can actually get. Kind of during the end of summer, beginning of autumn, the weather can be quite challenging and, and changes a lot. So you can't really plan training very well because if you plan to go out for a week, you know, the chances are you're going to have weather days for six out of those seven days. So the longer that you can train for, the better. And kind of it's it's like two weeks on, two weeks off. But more recently, it's kind of been a month on and then a week off. And that's kind of all year round. We don't really have an off season. Oh, that's, do you not find that really tough? All the traveling, being away from it. Do you not miss just being at home? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the thing that I miss the most is being able to plan things in advance <laughs> And a, and a routine, which would be great. But, you know, as you know, the world of sport, you have to be adaptive. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Did you not consider at some point doing a summer sport? Because I can totally recommend, <laughs> to be honest. I'm in Dubai right now. It's like 26 degrees oh, outside. No, it's, it's great, you know. I, I recommend it. You should try. Oh, it was minus 37 with wind chill yesterday. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever felt that. <laughs> yeah. 
we had to tape up our faces because the the windburn and the the, the frostbite risk were uh, too high. You had to tape up your faces. <laughs> yeah, because um, when we're skiing downhill, it's it's not great to have like a, a buff or a scarf around your neck or anything on your face. Um, because obviously I have to communicate with my guide, Brett. I can't have anything like muffling my mouth, but also like you you don't want to get anything caught on your neck or anything. So like you have to tape up your, your face to to stop the burning. <laughs> It looks a bit ridiculous. That's, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. But hey, <laughs> each to their own. Like, do you have a favourite brand of tape? Or I don't know, do you just put duct tape on your face? How does this work? Duct tape is the best because it's not like, it's not porous. <laughs> I had to wear K-tape yesterday and I reacted really badly to it when it came off. Wow. So I didn't know that yeah, this was... Vaseline tomorrow. Okay. Well, I've learned something new today. So hopefully everyone listening has too. So you mentioned, obviously, your, your guide, Brett. And I, I'm genuinely interested, actually. How do you choose a guide? Like, how do you start the whole process of working out who you ultimately... I think, want to put your life in in their hands. Because, you know, when you're whizzing down a hill at a ridiculous speed, I would want someone that I 100% trust. And I, at this point, I don't know if I could name anyone that I would trust to do that. So you've got a pretty big job. <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, when you say it like that, I don't think I'd even trust myself. <laughs> um, yeah, choosing a guide is probably one of the most challenging aspects of this sport. Getting that personality, that character, that talent right is one in a million because everything, every single aspect has to click and it has to click perfectly. Brett is certainly one in a million. Um, he's a very, very special man. His prior knowledge, his prior experience of skiing, it gives me confidence and I think that's, that's a, you know, that's a standard fundamental thing that a guide needs to have. You know, so that when, whenever I'm faced with a, a new run or a new course, I know that he will know exactly how to ski it and what line would be the, the best, the fastest, the safest... And, and then obviously I like to have a male guide because, well, for many reasons really, but the main one is that a guide-athlete relationship is very, very intense. And with a with a male guide, I will never have to share a room with them. And kind of from my experience with the thousands of guides I've had, it can be very intense spending 24-7 with each other, especially when we're away for long periods of time. You know, I can probably be quite annoying, so it's probably nice for Brett to have a break from me. <laughs> he can just close the door once he's done. But to get on as friends is is very important too. You, you don't want to be working with somebody that annoys you. Or, well, I mean, <laughs> I can't say that we don't annoy each other. We, we are like squabbling si- siblings sometimes. But it's usually over like really trivial things. It's, you know, who gets to sit in the front seat and... <laughs> like out here in the Paralympic Village just now it's all about pin swapping as you know and that Brett's got so competitive about it yeah I feel like some people (laughs) Um, really get sucked into that have you got any good ones because I I suck at it I get no uh, pins shocking I expected better from you I apologize (laughs) I I always end up giving mine away and just forgetting that I'm supposed to swap them and then and then I'm like oh I've I've run out of pins I just gave them away (laughs) I feel like maybe this is why you've got a gold medal and I don't (laughs) I feel like we've found but it now. you would obviously get a gold medal <laughs> um, in pin swapping, so, you know. Absolutely, it'd be hands down. There's there's like different tiers of like what makes a good pin. Like okay, come on, give me give me these tiers. It's a sport in itself. Well, obviously, the top tier is the home host yeah. nation. You definitely need one of those. Any sort of controversial pins are quite good as well. Any like minor nations as well, or like nations that are competing for the first or last time, or, you know, something something pretty cool. The volunteers try and give you really weird ones sometimes. Yeah, see, that's what I end up swapping. <laughs> so it's about I being end up selective. I all mine for like 
Otterbock <gasps> ones. And then I go to the Otterbock tent and I'm like, oh, cool. I just swapped mine for a free badge. That's 10 points to Hannah yeah. there. Great job. <laughs> you know, when you've when you've obviously gone and won some medals for Paralympics GB, the important bit. But can we then have an update on your Instagram of how many pins you've got? Because I'm deeply intrigued on... I, I've almost completed the lanyard. You've been there two days. I've been here four days. <laughs> Probably should talk about skiing yeah. again now. I know the listeners are going to be like, they've just spent the whole time talking about pins, but it's really important. It is. And I, <laughs> you know what? I feel like this is a side that, you know, we can talk about our sports, we can talk about all that, but this is a side that people don't see. You know, people people want to know what happens in that yeah. village. So, actually, let's just talk about the village. Like, you've been in Beijing for two days now? Uh, we arrived on the 26th. So, a few, so a few days, days, that is. How, yeah, days. how is the village? Yeah. How are you finding it? I'd actually say it's probably the best village out of the three games. Ooh, I've big been claims! To. Yeah, it's a big claim. It's it's really good. There's like a massive games room that's like full of VR stuff, and that's that's amazing. That's so much fun. There's all sorts of things to do, and it's, it seems like a, a very very cool village. And you're are you allowed in this games room? Because if you are, Paralympics GB are in trouble because they banned us from the games room. I still went in, but um, they banned us. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that actually there wasn't pin swapping wasn't even allowed in in Tokyo, so I can imagine that the games room was probably out of bounds. Well, too. it was out of bounds, but um, I somehow found myself in there, and we had this really cool game. I literally spent hours on it. It was like Ninja Stars, <laughs> and you had to like throw them at this wall, and you got points as to where you hit. I was oh, cool. really bad at it, but addicted to it. My coach, absolutely <laughs> ten out of ten. I think because she was stood up, it was a little easier. You know, the wall was at standing height. But yeah, man. Get the excuses she was, in there. She was whipping yeah. these ninja stars in that wall. And it was so much. It was amazing. Like, it is cool, isn't it? Like, getting to visit these different countries and you just see things that... I've never seen a ninja wall in Britain. I'd like to, but I haven't. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a a VR uh, shooting game thing. You kind of, like, have this massive pen and then VR goggles on and, and like, a little weird sort of gun type thing and you can run around, like, trying to shoot people. <laughs> And myself and Brett did it, and uh, yeah, he beat me thirteen two. But it's it's so fun, like hiding behind little sort of breeze blocks and stuff. <laughs> but Brett's Brett's pretty heavy footed, so I could see him coming, but it still didn't help me. Um, <laughs> I think you need a rematch. But I, he has an advantage; he's in the military. I think you need a rematch. Like I, I demand. One. I think so too. And yeah. I also think that Paralympics GB should uh, fly me out to Beijing to record this podcast, so I can play on these games. Yeah, Sounds for good. sure. Sounds like absolutely. Good. <laughs> how's your food haul that's very important how's the food haul oh how do i put this repetitive uh, yeah i would <laughs> tend to agree uh, four days in and, and the ketchup's already out the the nando's peri peri salt is out yeah I'm, i I like walk into the dining hall with like all my condiments <laughs> oh wow the volunteers do look at me like what is hey, she doing you know what you like if that helps you ski better you have all the condiments you need all right you've got my permission but yeah i do tend to agree like we all play up this food hall and it is it is amazing genuinely isn't it like you go in you can get food 24 hours a day there's always a lot of choice fridges all around the walls it is pretty amazing but yeah tokyo once i'd sampled the japanese food it was the same japanese food every day Mm, breakfast lunch and dinner (laughs) yeah i've started having um rice and bacon for breakfast and adding a bit of a maple syrup on top i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) do you know it's spectacular would highly recommend okay well maybe maybe i'll try it (laughs) give it a try give it a try i can't say it's a combination of foods i tried it for a bit of variety you're four days (laughs) in 
And you're already looking for variety. I know. <laughs> Maybe we should move on from the food hall. It's obviously not as big a hitter as the uh, as the games room. Yeah. So I'd say like the village overall and and everything is is better than Pyeongchang, but the food hall in Pyeongchang was was another level. Oh yeah. London 2012 food hall was uh, buzzing. You want a Sunday roast? Oh, Twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, baby. Come and get no. it. I feel like we should just get back on track. So back to your guide that we were discussing in so much detail until we got to pins. Oh, yeah. Um, you clearly just have to have so much trust in them. And since you started working with Brett, you started working with him just after Sochi? Yeah, 2016. Mm, all that time ago. But you literally have been the dream team since then. Right, so correct me if any of these are wrong, but this is the list I got sent. Silver at the 2015 World oh, Champs. Right gold and three silver at the 2017 world championships two silver and a bronze at the 2018 paralympic games i mean that's a pretty good list to start with that's quite a few medals what do you think it is that makes you just work so so well together because that's a dream team i mean round of applause thank you i think like our friendship off the snow really builds the the partnership on snow i would consider brett one of my best friends and i think he always will be. I think we've been through too much together for, for us not to be. He knows also too much about me. <laughs> yeah, like I say, he's a, he's a special man with some amazing attributes and characteristics and the skills that he's learned from the Royal Navy as well have, have certainly helped him in, in this role. And I think the work that our sports psychologist, Kelly Faye, did with us right back at the very beginning where I didn't want to ski with Brett. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, I mean, sometimes he needs putting back in his place. I, I big him up quite a lot. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to ski with him initially. I was like, I, I don't, you're annoying. <laughs> but I think the things that annoyed me back then and the things I love most about him now, I, I think it's it's been a very successful partnership and uh, it'd be interesting to see how we can do it. Yeah, amazing. definitely. What convinced you to give him a go? If someone annoys me, I'm, I'm just going to be like, nah, I'm not giving you the time, but here you are medals later (laughs) and you're in Beijing together I know Brett is the exception to things usually with a guide you know instantly whether you're going to trust them Mm. or not the first camp that I had with Brett was pretty tough it was basically a whiteout for the entire camp of just chucking it down with snow so that's like the hardest conditions for me as a VI Mm -hmm. to ski in and the hardest conditions for a guide to ski in and it was his first day and then we flew to (laughs) we flew to America and I was skiing with another guide who I'd also trialed around the same time and I was much preferring him to Brett. And uh, whilst I was skiing with the other guides, Brett was forerunning, so he was like skiing first at the race kind of to test the course and he fell. And I just thought, do you know what? You have one chance, you've blown it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then our sports psychologist, Kelly, she kind of sat Brett down and was like, what did you just do that for? <laughs> and had a really like brutal conversation with him and... Uh, I then skied downhill for the first time in my life with Brett and literally from that moment onwards, like I trusted him with everything. And he is the hardest working man. Like he questions everything so to make sure that he knows exactly what he needs to do. And I love that. He's he's cool. He's also so annoying. <laughs> just just keep getting the digs in there eh, to just deflate his ego a little bit. He's yeah, gonna listen exactly. to this and be like, Yes, I am the absolute oh, best. No. I'm not going to help the situation right now because I'm going to list what you've done more recently, which it just gets better. Just listen up. So more recently, gold in the Super Combined and bronze in the Super G at the recently delayed World Championships. Gold in the Super G at the World Cup Final. 
along with the Super G Crystal Globe, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds proper impressive, so good job. <laughs> I mean, what a way to start a Paralympic year. What a way. Yeah, it was certainly unexpected. Last year, I had a really horrible crash and ended up in hospital for a couple of days because I hit my head and sustained my fourth concussion. And it took six months for me to get back to normal, to start functioning as a human, back as Millie. And uh, I just thought, can I be going through this again? Like, this is awful. I, I really, four concussions and four times I've had to try and get back on track and, and be the best in the world. And I think after four times, it's like, why? Mm. Why am I doing this? You know, I'm crashing and landing on my head at 100 kilometers an hour. This is the most bizarre ridiculous thing to be doing and when I kind of got back on snow again during the summer it was like ah, I'm scared I'm so scared I've got so much fear there's no way that I'm going to be able to get back to winning to to where we were and the first couple of races of the season yeah reminded me that I really have lost it <laughs> I was yeah I was doing really badly and we kind of thought oh great <laughs> This is going to be so tough this season with the World Championships and the Paralympics so close to each other and we're not on form. This is horrible. And then we came home for Christmas and I don't know what happened. I must have reset and we came out for the World Championships thinking, oh, we're not going to get anything at these games. And, you know, it might be quite good if we don't because then people won't have expectations for us. There'll be no pressure going into the games. And then we went and won gold and that kind of ruined everything. Um, it's changed other people's perceptions and expectations of us but it hasn't changed our own. I mean you, you did ruin it because pressure's kind of on now you know gold last month January <laughs> not long ago but I mean I've been skiing once and I was actually all right at it you know I wasn't terrible but I was terrified I want to say I loved it it was great fun but at no point were my knuckles not white clinging onto them poles like I just want to <laughs> slow down and you know I'm in a speed sport but I do not reach anywhere near 100 kilometers an hour. Like, that is an insane speed. And I cannot... You are so incredibly brave for coming back and giving it another go because I don't believe that I could. Hand on heart. Like, I've never touched wood. Never had an injury. I've never crashed my race chair. I've never had an accident in training. And I don't think that I could come back from that. So you have been probably quite crazy to come back from it, to be totally honest. Quite insane. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, it's a screw loose. But I think, you know, it's it's not like I'm on my own here. I've got Brett, who's been very, very patient. I've got a fantastic team around us with the most amazing healthcare professionals and coaches and all sorts of people who've helped me get back. So, it's, you know, I've not had to do it on my own. Yeah. Have you found you've had to change your training or maybe change how you communicate with Brett to kind of make that come back and, and feel... I don't know, a bit more confident. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything's changed. Everything has changed. Like since my first crash in 2017, I am a different person, a different skier. Mine and Brett's relationship is different. My outlook on the sport, my relationship to the sport is totally different. I've got that sense of mortality that I don't think I had when I was 17, 18 years old <laughs> and happily flying down a mountain at ridiculous speeds. All I wanted to do at that point was go faster and faster, whereas all I kind of want to do now is go slower and slower, but know that I have to go faster and faster in order to get the results I want to get. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to battle with in my head, but yeah, lots has changed in good ways, in a more sort of mature way, but yeah, I'm not sure I've got that same edge that I had as, as younger Millie. 
I think you've got all the edge. We're all right behind you because that <laughs> takes some balls to get back on them skis and throw yourself back down a hill. Honestly, I, I'm so, so insanely impressed. Thank you. It is absolutely amazing. So good on you. Moving away from injury and illness, we've obviously all just come out of the end of a, a pandemic. Yeah. I can imagine that that affected your training mm-hmm. quite a significant amount if we weren't allowed to travel and, and see other people. Yeah. Initially, it was quite considerable. All the other nations were still able to train because they had mountains in their back gardens. And, you know, whilst my back garden's lovely, it's, it's not there's <laughs> any snow on it. And, uh, yeah, so the the first lockdown was really challenging. But it also brought some kind of aspects that I'd never really had in my training before. Like, I had consistency, like there was no tomorrow. It was the longest I'd ever been at home since the age of 12. That in itself was quite nice, knowing that I was going to be doing the same thing next monday and the monday after that and so my my fitness my kind of dry land training shot through the roof and so in that regard it was very useful so it meant that by the time we did get back on snow i was in the best physical condition that i could have been in so i wasn't trying to play catch up on that side of my performance but we certainly lost a lot of ski days but do you think maybe in a a really you know it's so hard to pick positives out of the whole 2020 2021 period for a lot of people but, you know, I look back mm-hmm. on my training during that time and I didn't have access to tracks. I didn't have access to the gym for the first time in, in 15 years. But actually, I came out mm-hmm. the other side, like, as you say, the fittest I've ever felt, felt and ever been because I gave myself the time to focus on those mm-hmm. things that actually sometimes you, you maybe brush under the rug. You maybe think, oh, I haven't got time to do that before this championships. I need to focus on this or I haven't got time yeah. to learn that new piece of equipment. Do you think, I definitely think that that gave me the edge coming into to Tokyo. Do you think maybe that's, that was kind of the difference when you lined up at the World Championships. You'd, you'd maybe focused on some different things and become stronger in a different way, even though you hadn't been on the snow. Definitely. And I think during normal seasons, skiing can be intensive and all-consuming and all that you can think about. And I think the pandemic kind of gave you a forced break that allowed you to fully reset your brain and kind of not think about skiing for the first time in a very long time and actually made me miss it and you know I'm very very lucky and very grateful to be you know in the position that we were still able to continue to train. So here you are you're in Beijing you're out there now your third Paralympic team does this selection considering everything that's gone you know your concussions your injuries the pandemic everything that's happened behind you does this selection feel like the sweetest one yet? Yeah, so Sochi was a massive shock uh, to be selected for. Pyeongchang is kind of a sense of deja vu from here as well because I'd hit my head exactly a year before uh, Beijing. And uh, <laughs> and so like we had a really tough start to our season and there was kind of doubt to whether I'd even be selected, never mind win any medals. And it's kind of, it was the same this season too where selection was definitely not confirmed. And... Uh, yeah, it was it was a bit worrying actually. So when I got my selection letter through, it was it was actually quite emotional. Yeah, I feel like you're the unluckiest person ever. <laughs> I know you I keep know. hitting your head and at it, the worst it, times. It all keeps happening <laughs> in the finish area as well. So I like I complete the course. But you are you are there. You have made the team. You're competing in five events. That's, that's quite a lot, yeah. to be fair. That's that's a lot of skiing. Very busy schedule. It is a lot of skiing. Right. I had to I had to intently research what these five events were because I'm no ski expert. So you're competing in. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. The Super G, the Slalom, 
the giant slalom, the downhill, and the super combined. Yes. Have I nailed it? You have. Sweet. You have. <laughs> um, can you briefly explain what the difference between each of them? Because I cannot. So they're kind of grouped. So slalom and giant slalom are described as the tech disciplines because, like the title suggests, they're the more technical events. So the the gates are closer apart, the turns are much quicker, skis are a little bit shorter, and everything's a little bit more intense. And then you have the speed events, which are downhill and super G, and they are the ones that have the gates much further apart, much slower intensity turns, but much, much quicker speed. And then you have super combined, which is one run of, of super G and one run of slalom, and it's combined time. I didn't even know that skis came in different sizes, so there we go. Yeah, exactly. So slalom skis are 155 centimetres, GS are 183s, Super G's are 200 to 205, and downhills are anywhere between 200 to 215 to 220. Right, so you didn't pack light for Beijing then, did you? No. (laughs) I hate to see what our excess baggage cost was. (laughs) That seems, I genuinely had no idea that you use different skis. I think a lot of people ask like, oh, do we use different race chairs depending on what distance we're racing? The answer is no. It's one chair for them all. And our excess baggage is insane. So yeah, that's that's a great expense, number one, to buy all those skis. But I bet Oof. traveling them around is a, a bit of a pain in the bum. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and trying to pack all those skis. So like last season, I had 30 pairs of skis. And if you consider how many people are on our team times it by that many trying to pack the vans in between races and training camps is is a game of tetris wow that's a lot of equipment yeah. <laughs> i wasn't expecting that at all that's it insane. is a lot oh yeah. so out of the five events yeah, you have all sorts of types that's blown my mind to be honest but out of the five events which is your favorite one downhill that was a very quick answer that wasn't a hard question was it no it's it's not a hard one historically downhill and super g have been the events that we've done the best in downhill is the most terrifying event um it's yeah it's pretty scary it's it's very fast you know today was 113 kilometers an hour it just in the training run so in the race run is going to be considerably faster than that and every single day that we train that hill the the snow gets quicker and I was by far not the fastest on that hill. So I, <laughs> I tried to think what people's max speed were who were going a lot faster than me. You don't necessarily have to be the most technical of skiers. You've just got to have the guts to point your skis straight. <laughs> how do you know how quick you're going? I have a tracker on me. There are also speed guns. Imagine. Imagine if you got pulled over for speeding. That would be ridiculous. Well, yeah, you sometimes do. Like uh, in a downhill... Um, I mean, luckily, I'm I'm usually between bib one and nine, so I, I go first. So usually, it's not an issue for me. But you can get yellow flagged, which means that somebody's crashed in front of you, or something's gone wrong, and you have to stop. Like on on this course, I would hate to have to stop halfway down. Because oh <laughs> it's it's like sheet ice as well. So like when we were inspecting the course this morning, everybody was like slipping all over the place, like not not being able to stand no up. Way. That's <laughs> brutal. I've got one break, and I struggled to stop. So. I'm not doing that downhill on ice. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've crashed three times in the finish area because I've not been able to stop. <laughs> You're not filling me with confidence here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a great sport. Everybody should take it up. <laughs> you mentioned something about the snow is only yeah. going to get quicker the more training runs you do. So does that mean just the more compacted it gets, the quicker you're going to slide? Or Basically, because obviously the Olympics were only a matter of weeks away ago, they have to inject <laughs> they have to inject the snow 
to make it as bulletproof as possible because obviously those Olympians do like to ski on some tough stuff. <laughs> so that's meant that we then have a very slick course too. And injecting is where you literally inject it with water and then it freezes and then turns into ice. And it's obviously snowed since then and they've groomed it and they've had lots and lots of people skiing over it. So the snow has kind of got churned up a bit. But every day that we inspect and then run the course, it gets further and further down to the base layer, which is obviously the quickest part of the snow, which is just sheet ice. Wow. <laughs> I genuinely didn't know there was this much technicality behind it. It's, so, it's genuinely so interesting. Yeah, I think our wax tech, uh, so he's, he's the technician for our skis. I genuinely think he's a genius. <laughs> It's, it's like chemistry. He's a wizard with our skis, combining all the different types of waxes and knowing what chemical to use, what, what temperature would work with the best snow. And oh, I don't know how he does it. It's unbelievable. That's really cool. And it's really cool, actually, that you get someone like that to do it. So in wheelchair racing, we, we don't have yeah. a mechanic. We do everything with our race chairs ourselves. And I'm not the best at it. So really? Hey, who knows how quick I could go if someone else looked after my race chair. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be coming last and on my head a lot more if it wasn't for our amazing tech. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. You'd figure it out, I'm sure. In your busy schedule, how how will you manage your time in the village? I'm going to imagine you don't actually get that much free time in the village. Once you've competed and, and done everything no. around that, you go to bed and get up again and go again. Yeah, it's, it's um, super, super early mornings. I mean, thankfully, we don't exactly have a very long commute. Like the gondola station to go up to the mountain is literally like underneath the food hall. So it's not like Pyeongchang where we had like an hour's bus trip up just to get to the gondola. It's not as early as it was back in 2018, but it's still very early starts. I'm up at five tomorrow and we won't get back down until probably around two o'clock. And that's only, you know, we've only got one run of racing to do tomorrow. But when it comes to the super combined day where we've got two runs and then obviously the GS and the slalom as well, we're going to have very, very long days. So actually time off in the afternoons is, is limited. And when we do have time off, it's about recovery, especially because we've got seven or eight training days in a row, including two races. Yeah, recovery is very, very, very important. That's a long time up there. That's a, yeah, that's full on recovery wise do you just go and see the physio and then go and i don't know go to bed yeah that's brett's technique he he naps for three hours and i i don't think you could call it a nap at that point (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I like to to foam roll to spin on the uh on the bike we have these like new compression boot things at the moment that like inflate with air around your legs and then get really tight it's basically like having a blood pressure test on your legs for 30 minutes (laughs) last question how could anyone listening to this, how how would you recommend they get into skiing? You know, if they watch you out in Beijing and they go, you know what, I reckon I can do that. Would you recommend it? And how do you think they can get involved? I answered this question for Channel 4 the other day and I said, don't do it. <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> but I just, no, I just kind of fell out of my mouth before I could think properly. I obviously don't mean that. I would say that, that like the best way to get into sport is certainly if you have a disability is, is through Disability Snow Sport UK. They are a fantastic charity that help any person with a disability get into the sport. Whatever your ability, they'll they'll be able to help you. And I think it's that's how I got into the sport. Yeah, I would highly, highly recommend just giving it a go. Well, there you go. Highly recommended. Also, don't do it. <laughs> the absolute best of luck out in Beijing. We are going to all be absolutely screaming for you out there. Genuinely, thank you so much. And the absolute best of luck. We will be watching. Thank you very much.
For all your updates on Beijing 2022, head to paralympics.org.uk and follow us on the socials at ParalympicsGB. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss updates to this podcast series. And if you want to find a new and inclusive way to be more active or to try something new, then check out parasport.org.uk to find a club or activity near you. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Paralympics GB Podcast with Hannah Cockcroft. Beijing 2022.